Welcome to episode 118 of Kentucky History and Haunts. This is part two of the Bad Coroner story featuring Dr. Charles Harlan. If you haven't listened to part one yet, you might want to start there, although this could still be just as entertaining without it. Um, but yeah, I recommend starting with one, then coming back here for two. I left off last time. I was about to tell you a story of mistaken identity. That's where we'll pick up today. The year is 1997. I'm going to read you an article about a man named Bruce Littleton. Quote, with Bruce Littleton now sitting in jail, the question in this small town near the Alabama border is this. Who was buried in his grave? His relatives say they don't know. They thought they buried Littleton 18 months ago after a fiery car accident. Police don't know either. Forensic tests were conducted on the corpse, exhumed from the cemetery this week, but no details were released. Officers do believe, however, that Littleton knows who's buried there. The speculation is he faked his death and committed the homicide on the individual who was found in his car to avoid facing federal drug charges, said Richard Brogan at the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. Littleton, 31, was taken into custody on January 21st in Smyrna, about 90 miles northeast of his hometown, Collinwood. His mother, Doris Littleton, seemed stunned a week later. I'm happy he's alive and has a second chance at forgiveness if he really did do this thing, she said. The bizarre saga began in 1997 when Littleton was arrested on federal drug charges for allegedly receiving methamphetamine through the mail. Investigators believe he tried to disappear shortly thereafter, Brogan said. Sometime in the late spring, his bullet-ridden car was found about 35 miles from Collinwood. Littleton resurfaced on July 31, 1997. The same car, with one person inside, hit a tree and burned. The night the body was discovered, the investigators thought it was a really hot fired fire and wondered if accelerants had been used, Brogan said. Given the drug charges and suspicions about the fire, investigators wanted to be sure about the identity. Then state medical examiner Charles Harlan checked dental records and declared the body was Littleton's. Nobody seems too sure how the mistake happened. Harlan won't talk about it. The body was buried in Collinwood. The drug charges were set aside. Life insurance policies were paid to Littleton's wife, Tammy. She bought a house for $105,000 on September 25, 1997 in Murfreesboro, not far from the town where Littleton was arrested. Mrs. Littleton sold the property a little more than a year later at a small profit. Mrs. Littleton was not at her Collinwood home when a reporter stopped by this week. She has an unlisted phone number. So, the question, obviously, was, who was the man Dr. Harlan did an autopsy on? Years later, the body was identified as belonging to a man named Andrew Joseph Blewett. It became pretty painfully obvious what had happened here. Bruce Littleton was waiting to stand trial for these federal drug trafficking charges. Uh, he went out, he picked up a couple of hitchhikers. One of them was Andrew Blewett. Police believed Littleton strangled Blewett under a bridge, 
kept the body in his car for a couple days, then drove over to Grundy County and staged a car crash, which explains why the fire seemed like it had been started with an accelerant when they first investigated, because it absolutely had been. So Littleton was indicted on murder charges in 2001. They were able to secure a conviction with help from a California crime lab who had a DNA profile on one of Blewett's teeth, which is what Dr. Harlan used to misidentify him a few years back was dental records. So it's just really bizarre. Um, so that's that. There's an interesting case from 1998. Uh, this is the case of Steve Hobbs and James Suttle. This one was in the papers a lot too. James Suttle was from Pulaski, Tennessee, but he moved to Las Vegas and became a professional gambler. In 1998, he came to his hometown to visit a cousin that he was very close with, Steve Hobbs. One night in October, while he was staying with Steve Hobbs, he woke up to Steve rushing into his room. Uh, Mr. Hobbs appeared to be having some kind of attack. He was trying to talk and he couldn't get the words out. Um, Suttle said he threw his hands in the air, spun around, and fell backwards onto this glass coffee table. And the glass shattered and shards of glass like pierced his back and then he died. So Suttle called 911. But over the following days, he felt like the police were investigating him for murder, uh, and he eventually had to stand trial. So Dr. Harlan laid out the timeline and testified, you know, there's no way this was an accident. James Suttle murdered his cousin, Steve Hobbs. Luckily, retired forensic anthropologist Bill Bass came to Suttle's rescue. If you recognize the name Bill Bass, it might be because you're a little bit morbid like me and you know about the body farm at the University of Tennessee, which is like the coolest thing ever. Um, this guy, Bill Bass, he started the body farm. So Bass said, quote, I looked at the autopsy and what medical examiner Dr. Charles Harlan says in the autopsy happened could not happen, could not have happened. He said, quote, I went out to the body farm and used one of the bodies that we'd just gotten in and did an incision in the back on the left-hand side. Bass took a cadaver and a steel rod and tried to recreate the stab wound and the path of the stab wound as described by Harlan, but the results of Bass's experiment completely contradicted Harlan's testimony. He said he was 100% certain it was not physically possible. This gets really interesting because it turns out uh, Mr. Hobbs's death was not accidental. Um, he had been in a fight a few weeks prior to his death, uh, two weeks, and he had splintered, he had a splintered rib from that fight that had been jabbing into his lung. And he had been living with that injury for two weeks without realizing it. And so they felt like if he had gone to a doctor for that injury, he would have lived. But they said basically he was a dead man walking, and that's why he died when he did. Either way, James Suttle did not murder his cousin. So he was found not guilty, no thanks to Dr. Harlan. And after it was all over, Suttle would talk about his case and how much money he spent on great lawyers and on hiring a bunch of experts. And he said, you know, if I didn't have the financial means to dispute Dr. Harlan's testimony, 
I probably would have gone to prison. And so what about all the others who don't have the money to do that? It's pretty unfair. And that brings us to the story that led me to do this episode. Um, and it's not chronological in terms of when it happened, but this is the case that's in the papers right now. So uh, thank you to the Courier Journal for covering this case. We're gonna go back to 1994. On September 13, 1994, Edward Ted Bowles, his brother James Bowles, and a woman named Jackie Renee Lavelle were, quote, partying at Jackie Lavelle's house in Christian County, Kentucky. The paper says they were, quote, sharing crack cocaine and sex, according to court records. It's my understanding that they were trading, you know, the brothers were providing her with crack in exchange for sex. So... Edward accused his brother and Miss Lavelle of stealing $100 from him while they were there. And so he got upset and he allegedly poked Jackie Lavelle with a butcher's knife to scare her, but then the two started to struggle. The brother, James Bowles, testified that at that time he left the house, and when he returned, Lavelle was dead on the floor. And he said that that's when Edward told him, quote, I can do somebody with my hands. I don't have to shoot them or stab them. I've choked her out. James Bowles was offered a lesser sentence in exchange for his testimony. So he told the court that together, the two of them loaded up Lavelle's body into a car and they dumped it off I-24 near Clarksville, Tennessee, which just happened to be Dr. Charles Harlan's jurisdiction. The Courier-Journal reports, quote, in his autopsy report, in which Harlan oddly described Lavelle as an uncircumcised female, he said that she died of asphyxiation but couldn't determine if it was strangled or suffocated asphyxiation because of decomposition of the body. So in comes Dr. Nichols from Louisville, and he said in his report, that's not right. There's no evidence of injuries to Miss Lavelle's mouth that would be consistent with strangulation or suffocation. So when Dr. Nichols was asked, well, why would Dr. Harlan put that down as cause of death if that wasn't the case? And Dr. Nichols said, quote, the cops told him that, so that's what he wrote and signed. And others said, yeah, that's certainly possible because the death certificate wasn't signed by Dr. Harlan until three weeks after Edward Bowles was charged with the murder. Now, the assistant attorney general will tell you that this doesn't matter. Harlan only testified for seven minutes, and his testimony wasn't really an, an integral part of the case. Um, he didn't use any of Harlan's testimony in his opening statement or his closing argument. But Bowles' attorney, Jacqueline Bryant-Hayes, disagrees. She argues that it was a central part of their case. So an offender can challenge their conviction, of course. But under Kentucky law, it's supposed to be done within a, quote, reasonable period of time. Well, this all went down in the late 90s. So why wait so long? Bowles' attorney says it's because Edward Bowles didn't know about all this stuff popping up in Dr. Harlan's career until recently. And so to Bowles, it was new information. So in 2020, 
Edward Bowles tried to have his sentence vacated, and Dr. Nichols did testify, but the Kentucky Court of Appeals ruled 3-0 against him. Basically, they said that yes, knowing what we know now about Dr. Harlan, he probably would have been found to not be a credible witness. But there's no new evidence here that would be grounds for a new trial. In fact, I read the Court of Appeals opinion, and in it, it says that Dr. Harlan's autopsy report wasn't even submitted as evidence in this trial. What's even more problematic to me in this trial than Dr. Harlan's, you know, expertise or whatever, is that uh, Bowles' attorney was a man named Joel Robinson Embry, and he didn't challenge Harlan's opinion at all in the original trial. They didn't hire any type of expert to dispute what Dr. Harlan found. Um, there were several complaints against, the, against this guy, and eventually uh, Embry was disbarred. So the argument for ineffective counsel might be the better argument to get this case vacated, and it was. It was so good, in fact, that the Court of Appeals did vacate Bull's conviction. However, the state Supreme Court turned right around and reinstated it. Uh, but they are still fighting. Um, the article I read most recently is from April 30th, and it says that Bryant Hayes, his, uh, his new attorney, says she's not sure whether or not the Supreme Court is going to take another look at this case. And now Bowles' only hope to get out of prison any earlier would be a parole board hearing, which is scheduled for September of this year. But he's already been denied parole three times, most recently in 2018. So, I don't know, to me this last case, uh, the one that happened in Kentucky, it kind of just seems like Bowles learned about Dr. Harlan's issues, you know, through the grapevine while he was in prison, and he thought, you know, this could be my, my Hail Mary to get out early. Um, I don't know, I wasn't there, that's just my speculation. But that's... Uh, that's an overview of Dr. Harlan's career. I do want to mention a couple more things. There was the, the case of the misidentified bodies of two inmates who had been killed in a car crash. So this happened more than once. Um, he sent the remains of two men still shackled to the wrong families. And then the last little story I have, this is also one of his more famous moments, I think. It's used in several articles. There was a bank that needed proof of death for one of their customers. They, they requested, you know, that he write them some sort of note that said this person is dead. And he faxed them a note that literally just said, so-and-so is dead, like with the initials of the person. And the bank responded and they were like, can you send us something that's a little more official? And so he faxed a letter back that said, quote, she is green and has maggots crawling on her. So there are a few other stories that were a little too gruesome for me to discuss. One involved a dog, which especially for me, I can't stomach anything negative that involves a dog. Um, he was also pretty anti-Semitic from what I understand. So there's that. There is a bit of a silver lining here at the end of this story. Dr. Harlan did eventually have his license revoked, so I'll talk about that real quickly. 
Just as a reminder, Dr. Harlan received his medical license in 1972. The Tennessee Health Department filed charges against him in 2002. Also in 2002, we should note Dr. Harlan pled no contest after being charged with putting a tracking device on the car of a former female employee. I cannot find any more details about that. Um, but yeah, tracking device on the car of a former employee. It's creepy. So the charges against him in his hearing for his medical license, uh, the charges spanned from 1994 to 2002. And in 2003, his hearing started. He did not speak in front of the panel, but his attorney called the hearing a witch hunt. Quote, trials of this nature have historically been held in Salem. They expected this trial to take a few months. They planned to meet over two dozen times, but the hearing didn't come to a close until 2005. So it ended up taking almost two years. Harlan was found guilty of 20 counts of misconduct, and his license was permanently revoked on April 20, 2005. The crazy thing about this is that he could technically continue performing autopsies through his private company. He just wouldn't be allowed to sign off on the reports. Someone would basically have to be his superior, is my understanding of that. Um, by this time, his wife had already resigned, you know, before she could be fired. So I just don't think that was in the cards for him. He was also still allowed to testify in court after his license was revoked. In fact, the very next day, he did just that. He testified in a murder trial. So it's a little weird. I don't know what has become of Gretel Harlan. I don't, um, she's hard to find on the internet. I don't think she's passed away. I couldn't find an obituary, but I do believe they got divorced at some point. So the papers are really quiet about Dr. Harlan after 2005. The next thing I could find was a Chattanooga Times free press article from 2010 that talks about trying to find Dr. Harlan. Quote, a local defense attorney says he doubts it will be easy to force a discredited discredited state medical examiner back into a Hamilton County criminal courtroom to face allegations that he botched yet another autopsy. The article said he was believed to be living with his mom in Missouri in 2010. I do know that Charles Harlan died in 2013. He had moved to Searcy, Arkansas, and his obituary listed his wife as Tatiana Harlan, and it also included the three children he had with Gretel, plus another son from Ukraine. So I'm assuming maybe his new wife, Tatiana, was Ukrainian. Um, but yeah, that, that ends the Dr. Charles Harlan story. Um, I guess since his license was revoked, I don't have to refer to him as Dr. Charles Harlan anymore. Um, but yeah, if you take anything away from this... I guess let it be that Elvis might still be alive because Dr. Harlan was one of the guys that performed his autopsy and, you know, a lot of people thought that that autopsy was faked anyway. So if, if Dr. Harlan was involved, it wouldn't be that surprising. Okay, I feel like I need to clarify that I'm not a conspiracy theorist, and I know that Elvis is not alive. 
<laughs> anyway, I did go down a little bit of a rabbit hole about Elvis's autopsy after I made that comment. And wow, that really is crazy. Like the dude was in terrible, terrible shape. Really a bizarre story. Apparently there's a documentary about his uh, autopsy. I've got to watch that. Anyway. Thank you for listening to another episode of Kentucky History and Haunts. If you have a suggestion for a future topic, you can send that to kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. Connect with me on social media. Please leave a review on Apple or Spotify if you haven't already. And I look forward to bringing another episode to you very soon. See you later.